0: United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
1: The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality It's Wednesday, June 7th, 2023, the 868th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. So yesterday, we talked about all of the crime drama happening around the country and around former presidents and fake presidents, all of the scandals running the gamut from the scandals that are not at all true, but we are told are very true and very important to the scandals that are absolutely true that we are told do not exist. It was just a crime spree of news yesterday. And let's continue with that for a few minutes because there are some updates. And before we get started, I want to talk about the idea of breaking news because some of these stories that we're going to discuss today are being called breaking news and being considered by the villagers as breaking news, but are not breaking news at all. And one of the things that always happens in our community, because we're consistently ahead of whatever breaking news is, is that we see these headlines, we see people post just in or breaking or just now or bombshell or anything else that's going to grab attention and get clicks. And our reaction is often, yeah, we already know that that's old news. And I certainly understand that. I think the same thing often. But it's not always a bad thing to give the idea that we are just stumbling upon some new information that everybody needs to know. Sometimes it's important to just add a new little feature to a story that most people understand or to present that rerun as it becomes really relevant in the context of current news just to remind people who were already aware of it and to give people who are just waking up their first glimpse of information that is critical to their understanding of what's going on. And so we'll probably touch upon that a few times throughout the show, but let's start here with just the news. We talked a little bit yesterday about the whistleblower allegations and how the information that the whistleblower communicated wasn't at all new. The headline from Just the News today, FBI harbored Biden allegations since 2017 through impeachment and election, lawmaker says. James Comer appeared on the Just the News show last night, and John Solomon writes this. If House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer's sleuthing turns out to be right, The FBI harbored a deep, dark secret through the first Trump impeachment, the Hunter Biden laptop saga and the 2020 election fury. The secret that a validated and well-paid informant raised concerns all the way back in 2017 that Joe Biden was involved in a $5 million bribery scheme involving Ukraine. The question emerging now is, did America's most famous crime fighting agency deep six the allegation? or dismiss it as Russian disinformation without thoroughly probing it. Comer made the bombshell revelation Tuesday night in an interview with Just the News, just a day after reviewing an FBI FD-1023 form, That memorialized the informant's allegations and two days before he plans to hold a vote in Congress to hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt for failing to provide a copy to his committee as demanded by a subpoena. He said the version of the informant report he was allowed to review by Ray had about 10 percent of information redacted and made clear the allegations were first reported to the Federal Bureau of Investigations back in 2017 as Donald Trump was beginning his term as president. Yes, it is Ukraine, Comer told Just the News when asked what country the alleged bribery involved. This Form 1023 involves a business person from Ukraine who allegedly sent a bribe, a substantial bribe, to then-Vice President Joe Biden. Asked whether the allegation involved the Ukrainian oligarch Mykola Zlochevsky, whose Burisma Holdings energy firm first hired Hunter Biden into a lucrative board and consulting job in 2014 when Father Joe Biden was vice president, Comer carefully demurred. I probably better punt on that question. The name was redacted. Comer said. But Comer said markings on the document he was shown, including footnotes, made clear the informant first provided the bribery allegations to the FBI in 2017. Then again, one more time before he raised them a third time in the June 2020 informant report. So the FBI has had this information for six years. And we're essentially just hearing about it for the first time within the past few weeks. Now, was this information available prior? Well, yeah, it was. Most of this is on the Hunter Biden laptop and in the report on the Biden laptop by Marco Polo, who has researched all of these situations and thoroughly researched Burisma and Zlochevsky and the Biden relationship with them. John Solomon was on War Room this morning and ties it all together, puts it into context quite nicely. Here
3: it is. Why is it the date is is a blow away number and and put it put it in the historical context of where we are, sir. In
2: 2019 we began impeachment proceedings against president trump saying that there was no reason to investigate the biden family that was the the premise of the democratic argument that led to impeachment eventually his acquittal in 2020 the hunter biden laptop came out and we were told it was russian disinformation there was no reason to believe that Hunter biden was running corrupt business schemes it turns out in 2017 the FBI already had one of its trusted informants, someone who had been validated multiple times. That makes him a good source. Someone who was paid $200,000 over the years to give the FBI reliable information that there was a bribery scheme in Ukraine involving a uh, uh, Joe Biden, when he was vice president, that comes in in 2017. It comes in again in the 1819 time frame. It comes in again in June 2020. There's no evidence to date that that's been fully investigated. But now the FBI says six years later, now we're looking at it. You can't release this information. That's what they're telling James Comer. Comer's revelations to us last night shows that for three to five years, the Biden family was in a protection bracket. And the FBI was part of it. The media was part of it. The intelligence community, the 51 who signed the letter. But the FBI also was part of that protection bracket, they had an obligation to tell the American people there was something about Joe Biden they needed to know before they hired him as president.
1: So the entire time the FBI has known about this bribery scheme involving Joe Biden, millions of dollars changing hands, Joe Biden and his family selling out American interests to our overseas adversaries, doing so in collusion with other powerful American political families. The Bidens aren't the only family tied up with business in Ukraine, even with business with the Bidens. John Kerry's stepson, Chris Hines, is one of Hunter's longtime business partners. The Pelosi's and the Romney's had things going on in Ukraine. Barack Obama was there with Dick Luger in 2005, setting the preconditions For the bioweapons labs in Ukraine, Ukraine is one of the central hubs of regime political corruption for some of America's top political dynasties. Now, this is going to be played as information that should have been provided to the American people so they could have made a more informed decision about who they wanted to be president. And John Solomon, of course, went through that point, that argument in the clip I just played. But that's not really accurate, of course, because the election was stolen. Joe Biden didn't win. And the information was out there for anyone who wanted to know it. Did the FBI withhold the information? Well, yeah, sort of, kind of. But the media wasn't going to tell us about it regardless. And in fact, they were telling us the opposite the whole time. There was more than enough information to know at the time that Joe Biden had corrupt political dealings in Ukraine. And that's why we all knew it at the time. So the informed decision that Americans could have made back then wasn't so much about whether or not Joe Biden was corrupt and whether or not they should vote for him. But when they saw the results of the election How impossible those results were, how many claims there were of cheating and malfeasance, how many videos and stories there were about examples of fraud, all the thousands and thousands of affidavits, the people coming forward. None of it made any sense, but people were resigned to their view and their justification, their rationalization that Donald Trump was so bad that nothing else mattered. We'll just let the normal old guy, Joe Biden, be president for a little while, and then everything will be okay. There's no way the voting outcome would have been changed. They were going to steal the election no matter what. But people's reaction in the aftermath might have been changed if the media was reporting on all this. So the FBI knew about this bribery allegation. The media covered for all of them. But did Trump know? That's the question. Donald Trump, as president of the United States, one would think, would get intelligence reports on this sort of thing. He would know about Joe Biden and his shady foreign business dealings. He would easily be able to find out about Joe Biden's history of criminality and corruption. So why didn't he stop it? Well, that's the real question, isn't it? Well, people like me and many of my friends at Badlands Media try to present a coherent picture that supplies the answers for questions like that. I think we're right. I hope we're right. If not in full, then mostly right. But there's nothing else that really explains any of that. Donald Trump certainly didn't just give them a freebie. He didn't just roll over and say, hey, yeah, sure, guys, you can have this one. I know Joe Biden is totally corrupt, but uh, yeah, just take it. It doesn't make any sense. It's not in Trump's character to do that, and he had the power to do otherwise. So thinking that he did not do otherwise would have been a betrayal of his character and an abdication of duty. So it's very likely that he did do otherwise. Now, people might think that he got scared off of his job and just left. He didn't want to deal with the conflict any longer. But if that was true, then why would he be running now and putting himself through the rest of this? So what we have is a difference between the event itself, knowledge of the event by key people, and then knowledge of the event by the general public. And you can see how the general public knowledge kind of works and gets rolled out in waves. We knew this stuff, enough of this stuff with enough clarity in late 2020 before the election. And so many other people are just finding out about it now. That's nearly three years later, and it's six years after the FBI was aware. Donald Trump very likely knew, and he made decisions that can't be explained with just simple answers from the central narrative. The official story in the central narrative has no ability to explain these facts. And we see that coming up over and over and over again which is why it's necessary to just let the central narrative go. It can teach you what the regime wants you to believe, and that's valuable information. It's usually a good idea to start looking for the truth in the exact opposite of what the regime wants you to believe. But there's not a whole lot of truth to extract there otherwise. Now, I talked just a second ago about Trump being willing to put himself through all this other stuff if he was just going to walk away and just going to give the game away to the communists. Obviously, that's not what he's doing. And so what kind of stuff am I talking about him facing? Well, here we have it from The Guardian this morning. Multiple witnesses subpoenaed in Florida in Trump Mar-a-Lago case. Federal prosecutors have subpoenaed multiple witnesses to testify before a previously unknown grand jury in Florida in the criminal investigation into Donald Trump's handling of national security materials and obstruction of justice, according to people familiar with the matter. So now we just find out there's a grand jury going on in Florida that we didn't know about before the new grand jury activity. At the U.S. District Court in Miami marks the latest twist in the investigation that, for months, has involved a grand jury that had been taking evidence in the case in Washington but has been silent since the start of last month. Trump aide Taylor Budowicz is scheduled to testify before the Florida grand jury on Wednesday, one of the people said, and questioning is expected to be led by Jay Bratt, the Justice Department's counterintelligence chief detailed to the special counsel, Jack Smith, who is leading the investigation. The previously reported involvement of Brat could suggest the questioning may focus on potential espionage act violations, particularly whether Trump showed off national security documents to people at his Mar-a-Lago resort, a recent focus of the investigation. So did any of these documents that Trump took, did he take them and show them off to people, and say, look, did you know that I used to be president, and now I have these classified documents? Would you like to see them and understand how powerful I am? That's basically what we're being told that Donald Trump did, and so now he is a uh, criminal. And the only kind of people who would ever believe something like that are the people who think that Donald Trump is very, very stupid and a total egomaniac who can't control himself. And why do they think that? Is that from a uh, rational consideration of all the things that Donald Trump has done and said? Well, no, of course not, because the people who hate Trump don't actually research and find out the things that Trump has done and said. They listen to the television because the television tells them what Donald Trump has done and said. And the television is certain that Donald Trump is very, very stupid and an egomaniac who can't control himself. So that's what most people believe about Donald Trump. And they believe that they have proof in the world that proves that position right. As soon as they go back and get all those clips, they were shown on the news and then they play all those clips and they say, look how irresponsible, look how out of control, look how very, very stupid this man is. And they ignore absolutely everything else he has ever done and said And of course, they have to ignore all of the net effects, all of the results of what Donald Trump being president and being in the public spotlight in this way has produced. They have to ignore all of that stuff and just focus on the clips from the TV. And if you do that, well, yeah, Donald Trump's very, very stupid, cannot control himself, total egomaniac. Back to the article. And here's the kicker. But the underlying reasons as to why prosecutors in the special counsel's office impaneled the new grand jury in Florida and whether it is now the only grand jury active in the case after the Washington grand jury has sat dormant for weeks remains an open question. Prosecutors would most probably prefer to bring charges in Washington where the judges at the U.S. District Court are more familiar with handling national security cases. Though Florida also has a robust national security section and the jury pool skews more Democratic. Oh, those sweet, sweet Democratic jurors in Washington, D.C. So the U.S. government, the Department of Justice and their appointed special counsel, Jack Smith, have an interest, we're told, in finding a potential jury pool that skews more Democratic so that they can get Trump. We are being told that by a mainstream news outlet. This isn't some civil trial where the lawyers are vying for the friendliest jury. This is the U.S. government attempting to prosecute one of its citizens and trying to exploit the system so they can successfully get a conviction. That's crazy. The impaneling of grand juries has to do with where prosecutors believe a crime was committed. And the most straightforward reason for the Florida grand jury is that prosecutors have developed evidence of criminal activity at Mar-a-Lago, which is in the Southern District of Florida. In this investigation, prosecutors considering charges against Trump for retaining national security material may have concluded from the evidence that he was still president When classified documents were moved to Mar-a-Lago, meaning his unlawful possession only started in Florida. Similarly, if prosecutors have also developed evidence that Trump knew he had retained national security documents after he left office at Mar-a-Lago, for instance, by waving them around or showing people that could present hurdles to charging Espionage Act violations in Washington. So it sounds like the documents were moved while he was still president. But once he started taking them out in Florida, then it was illegal. And him waving them around to people, that was where the crime was committed. Is that what originally sparked this case? Someone told the Department of Justice that Donald Trump was waving around classified documents to impress his friends. Is that really the story That we're being told here, this is the espionage we've been told about. And if we can't get him on espionage for waving around these documents to impress other people, well, then we can just get him on obstruction charges. And it sounds like that's the way they're going with all of this. It seems like it's coming this week. At this point, it basically means the rest of this afternoon or tomorrow or Friday. Now, you'd think big news like this, they wouldn't want it out on a Friday. You can't take enough advantage of it. Friday is when it's good to bury news. And so maybe they will find some news to bury on Friday. But who knows? You wouldn't want to get in the way of this breaking Trump indictment that is imminent. Is everyone excited? Is everyone ready? Are you prepared? Have you steeled yourself for the sight? Of these headlines, are the headlines going to terrorize you and send you into a tailspin? Donald Trump indicted on multiple counts of blah, blah, blah and obstruction of justice for waving around documents that he was allowed to possess in front of friends in order to impress them. And we will be told that it is a historic event. The first time that blah, blah, blah has ever blah, blah, on blah, blah. We will have examples from history added in. We will bring on all of the cable news historians to tell us how to put this whole thing in perspective with past presidents. We're going to hear about Richard Nixon, and then we'll hear about two or three presidents no one has ever heard of. So that all of the villagers out there watching MSNBC can spend their weekend saying the names of presidents that no one has ever heard of in order to impress their friends as if they were personally waving around classified intelligence. And they will do all of that while saying that Donald Trump is very, very stupid an egomaniac who can't control his own behavior as they accuse him of doing something terrible that they themselves are currently doing while accusing him. Hey, everybody, look at this. Nothing like this has happened since Warren G. Harding. I saw it on Lawrence O'Donnell. Oh, congratulations, commie. You're one dose eckies away from being the most interesting man in the world. Now, I mentioned earlier the idea that people will post news as if it's breaking, and people will believe that it's new news based on the fact that they were told it's breaking. They won't be familiar with the old news, and they'll say, Look at this breaking news. Have you ever heard anything so interesting? And you'll say, Yes, in fact, I heard that when it happened two and a half years ago. Well, there was an example of that this morning. But as I said earlier, some of these are actually really effective. And so D.C. Drano, who is a pretty popular MAGA influencer, his name's Rogan O'Handley, smart guy, has a lot of good insights. He's good at social media. He also has a social media censorship case that is still open. Harmeet Dillon is his lawyer in that case. So he has been involved at a significant level in at least some of the behind the scenes stuff that's been going on the last couple of years. I wouldn't go so far as to say that he has inside sources and that he's being given certain materials, although maybe he is. He's met Trump before. Hey, anything's possible. But today he tweets this out. Breaking. Signed letter from President Trump on January 19th, 2021, the day before he left office, declassifying crossfire hurricane docs showing Obama, Biden, the CIA, DOJ, and FBI spied on him. Now you know why they raided Mar-a-Lago, to steal back evidence of their crimes. Now again, this isn't really breaking news. All of this has been talked about plenty over the years. Drano adds on, kind of hard to prosecute a former president for classified documents that he not only officially declassified, but that also have a presumption of declassification under the Presidential Records Act. Now, is he going to be 100% right about this? Are these the only documents being considered? Is he right in his speculation that this investigation is to go retrieve these classified documents showing the complicity and the criminality of characters like John Brennan, people from the FBI, Obama, Biden, the Clintons, etc. Is he right about that? Well, we don't know. But he might be and this stuff has been theorized for a while. It's entirely possible that he was tipped off by someone on this. He went back and got this letter and put out this as speculation. Or I guess it's possible that he's way off and the whole Jack Smith thing and the Mar-a-Lago documents have nothing to do with these particular documents. We'll find out very soon, I'm sure, because again, we're told the indictments are coming. But either way, what does this do in the public narrative? It's not breaking news to us. To us, it's a rerun. To us, we already knew this. To everybody else who thinks that Trump has taken classified material that he was not supposed to take and he's been irresponsible with it and subjected America to national security concerns, well, hearing something like this is going to kind of knock them back off that a little bit. We've seen this happen before in Trump-related incidents, namely, and most recently, with Stormy Daniels and with E. Jean Carroll. We got the indictment from Alvin Bragg concerning Trump's hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. And immediately we hear a decision in a case. Trump was suing Stormy Daniels. He won and now Stormy owes him another $121,000. That timing is pretty convenient and pretty coincidental. By the time we actually got the decision in the E. Jean Carroll case, there had been days on end of old E. Jean Carroll information being sent up, going viral, old interviews she did, the fact that her cat was named Vagina, just tons of weird stuff that would totally discredit the entire issue in the public's consciousness before the information comes out. So this is the same kind of thing. This goes out. Everybody's like, wait, Trump did declassify all those documents. He declassified them a really long time ago. How is that going to affect the rollout of the narrative tomorrow? Most likely, I guess, with Jack Smith's indictment and charges. If that indictment has anything to do with Russiagate hoax documents, then all that is going to be immediately dead in the water just because something like this went viral today. All you have to know to be able to execute that perfectly is that there's a high likelihood that the indictment's going to come tomorrow and what the central focus of those indictments might be. So it's not that this is breaking news, it's not breaking news, but it might be a fresh new layer that massively increases the number of people who understand that all of this is nonsense. Now, let's switch gears completely without a segue. And we're going to talk about the media and social media for a little while. And before we get into that, I want to just refresh everyone's memory on something we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with these new calendar revelations that were coming out from the Wall Street Journal concerning Jeffrey Epstein and all of the people he was meeting. He was meeting with current CIA director and former deputy secretary of state under Barack Obama, William Burns, Obama's fixer, Catherine Rumler, Arianda Rothschild, the banker, Reed Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn, Larry Page from Google, obviously Bill Gates from Microsoft, one of the greatest philanthropists in the world. Epstein knew that he once had an affair with a bridge player, Jess Staley and maybe others at JP Morgan, Noam Chomsky, people from Harvard, people from MIT. And one of the things that ties all of these people together was their interest in algorithms and potentially maybe one specific algorithm, one that might link together the search engines and the social media platforms and bring all of that information into some sort of central hub that it seems like is maybe sometimes referred to as the fire hose. There were banking algorithms, all sorts of algorithms. Jeffrey Epstein seems to be in some way the hub of these regime technocrats and their development of this algorithm. Now, it makes sense intuitively and upon plenty of the evidence that's been developed over years and years of people researching this stuff and all of us following it and discussing it and learning more about it, that all of the data, if used most efficiently and most effectively, would have to be collected and analyzed and manipulated In a centralized fashion, you want all that data all together so you can know absolutely everything about absolutely everyone, because that not only allows you to know what they're doing and thinking and buying and where they're going and who they're speaking to, the whole thing, but it also allows you to see whether or not the changes you are making in the manner in which you manipulate them are having the desired outcome, the desired effect. You know what they're thinking and doing before you manipulate them. Then you manipulate them. Then you can watch the change. If you have all the data in the same place, then you're able to do that and you're able to see what works. Now, with that in mind, let's check out something Elon Musk said last week, and then we'll get into a few more media stories.
0: I think it's still the right move to acquire Twitter, even at the outrageously high price. I think it's going to turn out to be important. Well, the price wasn't just financial either. It's like no. I mean, this is a. I mean, I should say, like, you know, I do. There there were there are other investors besides me, and 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 Twitter. Um, You know, I'm the majority owner, but I have to. I want to make sure that those who invested uh, with me do not suffer losses. So I'll I'll make sure that the ultimate outcome is better than their original investment. But so I want to be careful about. You know, this is a hard way to get richer. uh, That's (laughs) for sure. Um, This is a. This is the mega pain way uh, to make money. Pretty much all of the social media companies and the search companies were acting in unison and along with the legacy media. So it was just, where do you find, the, you know, actually, where do you find the truth? If Everyone is in lockstep with a lie.
1: All the social media companies and the search companies were acting in unison. So where do you find the truth? if everyone is in lockstep with a lie. Now, you might think he's just talking about the central narrative and how it's relayed from the tech companies and the media companies and the informational bubble is enforced by manipulated search engines, but it seems a little bigger than that because he mentioned the social media companies and the search platforms. The censorship and the manipulation are only like the public-facing aspect of what those companies are really doing. And it's plenty harmful, just that, don't get me wrong. But the manipulation of the data on the back end, the collection of the data and the analyzing of that data is where all the problems actually start. And that's something that the search platforms and the social media companies have in common that they don't share with the media companies and their efforts to propagandize and censor. It's on a different level and it's a different mechanism. Is what I'm saying. Over the last year plus, that we've been talking about Elon Musk and Twitter ever since the announcement that he was going to buy Twitter, we've discussed Twitter as an information weapon, as part of this overall centralized grand algorithm in the clouds, and that Twitter now seems to be removed from that mix. But that centralized algorithm and the centralized data. Still has to be the big focus, especially knowing that the government is involved with all of that and has been for a long time. Now, we'll get back to Twitter in a second, but it's worth noting that today it's been reported Chris Licht is stepping down as CNN's CEO. The New York Post ran this headline this morning. Chris Licht steps down as CNN CEO after scathing profile in The Atlantic. Chris Licht is resigning as CEO of CNN. It was announced Wednesday morning after a scathing magazine profile alienated staffers and key senior figures at the network who called for his head. Warner Brothers Discovery, CNN's corporate parent, announced Licht's resignation effective immediately. His departure comes a little more than a year after he took over for Jeff Zucker, the beloved former network boss who was forced to quit after revelations of a relationship with a subordinate. Licht accused Zucker of undermining his leadership by planting negative stories about the news operation. So Jeff Zucker had been outed by Project Veritas as controlling and manipulating the news and Relaying a false narrative to the public, he was already having problems. CNN producers were being outed as pedophiles, and Jeff Zucker was taken down because of a relationship he had with a coworker. Now, John Malone had recently purchased Warner Brothers Discovery, and with it, CNN. He is a conservative and maybe a Trump supporter, and wanted to make some changes. Chris Licht came in. He made some changes. They've gotten rid of some of their terrible on air, quote unquote, talent like Brian Stelter and various other losers. And they've tried to make CNN more relevant. The boldest thing, perhaps the only bold thing that CNN has done under Licht's tenure was have the town hall with Donald Trump a few weeks ago. And that is probably the source of all of these attacks. He didn't get Over a scathing expose in the Atlantic that talks about how he and Don Lemon didn't agree on Don Lemon's wardrobe. Even the idea of something like that is preposterous. I don't know how anybody believes that sort of thing. Like, ooh. An article from The Atlantic. I don't know how we're going to weather this. We need to immediately fire our corporate CEO because now The Atlantic's 4,300 readers are very upset at Chris Licht. Now, CNN and The Atlantic probably share the same audience for the most part. So maybe CNN's actual remaining audience was upset by this Atlantic article. But this is not how people generally make important long-term decisions. So we're going to have to keep an eye on this and see where it goes. The choice of who to hire next will be very telling about how CNN sees their future and what direction they're planning to head in. They have a group of people covering Licht's former responsibilities in the interim. So let's get back to talking about Twitter for a little bit. On Saturday, there was a bit of a controversy swirling around Vivek Ramaswamy, who apparently is running for president in quotes, and also getting community notes on Twitter. He tweeted on Saturday, Ron DeSantis signed a hate speech bill earlier this year at his donor's request. I respectfully disagree. The right answer to Bad speech isn't less speech, it's more speech. That's the American way. And he included a clip of an appearance of his from CNBC. Now, the totally unfunny person who believes he is a stand-up comedian and is actually just an incredibly boring mainstream podcast host who also happens to be a gay dad, Dave Rubin, got upset with what Vivek Ramaswamy said. Because Dave Rubin is one of the formal DeSantis simps. He was there at the original meeting in January 2022, where they formed this whole terrible info op that is either the most incompetently run presidential campaign of all time or the most genius red team op to make Donald Trump look like a genius and to test the defenses at all of the anti-Trump attack points that have developed over the last couple of years. If that's what the operation is designed to do, well, it's been a huge success because Donald Trump, after eight months of Ron DeSantis simps trying to attack him, seems rather invincible. But Dave Rubin gets mad at Vivek Ramaswamy because he says that it's not true that Ron DeSantis signed a hate speech bill, a piece of hate speech legislation while he was in Israel, which is already weird. He definitely signed a bill. So it's just a matter of whether or not he can describe that bill as a hate speech bill. DeSantis signed a bill in a foreign country for Florida. What could be stranger than that? That's just not something governors do. Why would a governor travel to Israel to sign a bill for his own state? But Dave Rubin complains to community notes and then Vivek gets a community note. He also responds to Dave. He says, Dave, it's absolutely true. And we need to respectfully be able to have legitimate policy debates without taking it personally. The Florida law prohibits people from distributing certain kinds of literature, but not others. That's absolutely a hate speech law. Now, Vivek Ramaswamy is not the one out there labeling it a hate speech law. Everyone reporting on the bill when it was signed called it a hate speech law, including Florida outlets like Click Orlando. They're not Trump outlets. This isn't a MAGA hit, a MAGA takedown. No one's going after Ron DeSantis. This was how it was reported everywhere. And you can decide for yourself whether or not the reporting is accurate. But Vivek Ramaswamy didn't come out of nowhere saying this. This is from April 28, 2023. Like I said, click Orlando DeSantis in Israel signs bill curbing hate speech on private property. Here's what they have to say about the bill. The bill bans a number of actions in response to the growing presence of anti-Semitic rhetoric and actions in Florida over the last year. So we are to believe that anti-Semitism is on the rise in Florida just like it is on Twitter, according to the Anti-Defamation League, but not according to reality. We are always told that hate speech and hate crimes and racial hatred are on the rise everywhere all the time. It basically never turns out to be true, but that doesn't stop them saying it. And it doesn't stop left-wing organizations and regime-centered organizations from pushing more legislation to further control the behavior of normal citizens from the article among the provisions the law bans people from intentionally dumping litter onto private property for the purposes of intimidating a homeowner or invitee this is a first degree misdemeanor that can rise to the level of a third degree felony if it includes a credible threat and can also be reported as a hate crime so something that is already already a low-level crime Something you're not allowed to do is now going to be raised to a higher level crime if it can be called a hate crime. So how do you call things hate crimes? Well, you develop subjective standards and then accuse someone of violating those standards. We've seen this play out with the whole hate crime and hate speech debate over decades now. Displaying or projecting any message onto a private building without the written permission of the structure's owner. This is a first-degree misdemeanor that can rise to the level of a third-degree felony if it includes a credible threat and can also be reported as a hate crime. Harassing, threatening, or intimidating a person for wearing religious or ethnic insignia. This is a first-degree misdemeanor that can also rise to the level of a third-degree felony if it includes a credible threat and can also be reported as a hate crime. The bill also strengthens the penalty against any person who willfully interrupts or disturbs an assembly of people who are acknowledging the death of an individual, such as a funeral. It also creates a new trespass rule against people who go onto a Florida state college or university campus for the purpose of intimidating someone and then refuse to leave when asked to do so. The bill came about as the number of anti-Semitic incidents across Florida rose in the last year. That includes incidents in Central Florida where hateful messages against Jewish people were projected onto a building in downtown Orlando on New Year's Eve and at the Daytona 500 in February. There's also been an increase in other anti Semitic activity, like the distribution of flyers into neighborhoods around Central Florida. So you're not allowed to distribute flyers if they are offensive to certain communities in a way that can be construed as hateful, a hate speech or a hate crime. Actions that were already violations or crimes are now more serious crimes because they add on the hate crime and hate speech language and standards. Now, you don't have to support any racism or anti-Semitism or harassment or violence or threats of violence or intimidation, any of it to understand that this is still hate crime and hate speech legislation. It's what it is. It's what all hate crime and hate speech legislation looks like. They're just saying it's justified in this instance. And Ron DeSantis, as the killer of all things woke, remember, Florida is where woke goes to die. He would never create a woke bill on behalf of the same regime creating all of the race issues constantly he would never do that therefore he hasn't done that therefore if someone says he has done it just because he has done it that is misinformation and it must be reported so dave rubin being the excessively wealthy unfunny pretend stand up comedian gay dad and milk toast podcast host Tags in community notes and tries to get Vivek Ramaswamy in trouble. And boy, oh boy, does it work. So there are community notes placed on Vivek's original post. And so he follows up. He writes, this is an unbelievable move by Twitter to shield Ron DeSantis from legitimate criticisms of his policies. Let's hope it's just another innocent mistake like they made yesterday with their controversial censorship of the Daily Wire. But it doesn't smell awesome. Ron DeSantis enacted a law criminalizing the distribution of certain kinds of literature on private property. That's a hate speech law, and I said so. Next, DeSantis online trolls and larger DeSantis influencers like Rubin Report, that's Dave Rubin, complained to community notes to throttle my tweet, claiming that it wasn't technically a hate speech law. I disagree with them because it's absolutely a hate speech law in its effect, notwithstanding the law's title. But then the censorship czars at Twitter, which notably launched the DeSantis campaign and pumped it up with owner Elon Musk and DeSantis megadonor David Sachs, abided the request of the DeSantis supporters by throttling my tweet that criticized the DeSantis law. In summary, self-professed free speech advocates who support DeSantis are using a so-called free speech platform to suppress legitimate debate about a speech restraining law To protect a politician they favor, that's corporate interference in an election, but not in the way you'd expect. I was censored by LinkedIn last week for posting videos arguing against the climate agenda and Biden's relationships with China. That was bad, but this is worse. The establishment now includes those who like to pose as anti-establishment, which is more dangerous because some people actually believe their charade. It's also interesting to note that this comes just a few days after I questioned Elon Musk for his posture towards China. It'll be interesting to see if there's any quiet shadow banning of my tweets going forward. Lastly, any Twitter community note that they have to qualify with per se suggests they shouldn't have been involved in the matter at all. Now, this is where Vivek kind of ran into problems because he didn't fully understand how the community notes feature works. And I'm not sure anyone really does, including community notes, who responded with a bit of a confusing response, directing Vivek to Twitter's community notes and Twitter rules page to explain how the notes work. Basically, the notes are called upon by the Twitter community and once called upon the community notes will rule. On whether or not the tweet in question is true enough to go without a community note or whether they need to plant their authority on the situation and say, ah, uh, 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 this person didn't get it quite right. And then people will vote about whether or not that community note was helpful and justified. And when I go and rate community notes, I almost always say that they are not needed and not helpful. Because we do not need extra stuff. Just let everybody say what they want and let the chips fall where they may. That's what it means to actually support free speech. It doesn't mean that you tell everybody they have free speech and then conceive of new systems to make sure that people won't say certain things. That's not free speech absolutism in any way. So Vivek got totally owned by Community Notes twice. The first time because the DeSantis simps asked for help to say, hey, this isn't hate speech. And the second time to let Vivek know, hey, this isn't exactly how community notes work. It wasn't Elon and David Sachs putting this community note on. It was just people responding to all the complaints from the DeSantis simps and then voting up or down as to whether you should be allowed to say these things online. And that's a much better standard, don't you understand? We can have a fully funded social media operation for a regime-backed political candidate, and they can use that social media operation to engage the community notes feature and shout down what you're saying, but that's not censorship. Now, as you might be able to tell, I'm not a huge fan of community notes. There have been a couple of instances where they popped up on the tweets of regime figures and they show how that regime figure is lying or misstating something. And because that's not something that we ever get from media or social media, we haven't seen that in years. It seems amazing. It seems like finally the playing field is even and now these people are getting called out for all of their dishonesty and their conspiracy theories, that actually are conspiracy theories. None of them have proven true. And all that feels good for a second, but it's not free speech, and Twitter is not a free speech platform. Again, I am suspended on there right now. And for people who ask me on Twitter where I am, please understand that that doesn't make sense. Also, if you just click on my profile and read my profile, you will see where it says in my profile. If I'm not tweeting, I'm suspended. I'm not tweeting. Therefore, I'm suspended. You get it? I'm suspended. But the point is, that's not a free speech platform. It is a platform that wants to look like a free speech platform and convince people it is a free speech platform. Now, have I lost all hope in Elon Musk? No, I have not. And I'm happy to continue being patient but cautiously patient and realistically patient and honestly patient to the point where I am prepared to say that whatever he has intended to do and has expressed as his intent to accomplish, he has not done and not accomplished. If that's in process, fine. He's certainly not explaining a whole lot of that. He has everybody in the uniparty right cheering and chanting his name For providing this amazing free speech outlet and he plays right along with that and maybe he believes it's true because they believe it's true and they believe it's improved but it hasn't really improved that much. The truth is that people were censoring themselves prior to Elon Musk taking over. They could have said more things. They could have pushed the limits. They could have tried to open the Overton window or smash the Overton window which would be much better. But they didn't do any of it. They censored themselves because they're weaklings and idiots. It's the intellectual kids table. I've said this plenty of times. They could have lived out their principles and they didn't live out their principles. Instead, they just expressed those principles and then recast themselves as victims, even though they were self-victimizing. And in that, who do they sound like? Oh, yeah, exactly like the woke uniparty left again, because they're the same people. They just have different branding. Now, speaking of Twitter censorship, one of the Twitter files reporters, a liberal who used to work at The Intercept, Pierre Omidyar's outlet named Lee Fang, wrote this on his Substack yesterday. The headline Biden Justice Department intervened to block release of social media censorship docs. So they were censoring censorship docs. As journalists and civil libertarians began raising questions in September about the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's efforts to police certain kinds of political content on social media platforms, senior officials in the Biden administration's Department of Justice intervened to slow the release of public records that might have shed more light on the nature of the federal government's anti-misinformation crusade. The stalling effort? Highlights not only the broad authority that the federal government has to shape the political content available to the public, but also the toolkit that it relies upon to limit scrutiny of its involvement in the regulation of speech. We've heard from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, within the Department of Homeland Security, that the Daily Caller News Foundation has requested documents from the university which may include documents that belong to CISA, wrote Assistant U.S. Attorney Annalisa Cravens of the Western District of Washington in an email to Kate Starbird, a computer science professor at the University of Washington. Starbird, who runs a government-funded disinformation think tank at the University of Washington, serves on the CISA advisory panel tasked with helping the agency shape content moderation decisions at platforms such as Twitter and Facebook. The agency made a controversial push to censor social media during the 2020 election in partnership with several nonprofit groups. At the time of the email sent on September 26th, a number of journalists and watchdog groups were beginning to investigate the DHS CISA censorship apparatus. Fang explains how he's been seeking documents and he has experienced delay after delay in getting those documents. He writes, it is not clear which documents may have ultimately been delayed, withheld or redacted because of the Biden administration's interference in the public records request. The DHS and DOJ did not respond to a request for comment. Notably, I received multiple notifications from UW, that's University of Washington, seeking to extend the deadline to comply with the request I made last year, and the documents were not released until after congressional hearings on this subject back in March. The federal government maintains what is known as the state secrets privilege, which permits the Department of Justice to block the release of any information that could undermine national security. There are, no doubt, cases in which the federal government's stated national security concerns provide a legitimate reason for withholding a document from the public. But there is abundant evidence that the federal government abuses this power to shield itself from scrutiny. Multiple administrations in the past have intervened in record release cases to prevent transparency using similar legal tactics. Starbird herself has used exaggerated claims of harassment to dismiss journalistic interest in her organization's work. In reaction to the public records requests from journalists last year, Starbird announced that she was under, quote, harassment, mobilized by right wing media and influencers, end quote. In a thread on Twitter registering her disapproval, Starbird characterized the requests as akin to a cyber attack and claimed the documents were requested because she is, quote, a woman with short hair who works at a public university. End quote. Now, that is crazy. And Li Fang is a small Asian man who is a liberal journalist. He's definitely not a right wing media influencer trying to intimidate this short haired university communist. But the government is censoring censorship documents. And what else is the government censoring? This is from Aaron Maté on Substack Today. His Substack is maté.substack.com, and maté is spelled just like mate. FBI helps Ukraine censor Twitter users and obtain their info, including journalists. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has aided Ukrainian intelligence efforts to censor social media users and obtain their personal information, leaked emails reveal. In March 2022, an FBI special agent sent Twitter a list of accounts on behalf of the Security Service of Ukraine, the SBU, Ukraine's main intelligence agency. The accounts, the FBI wrote, are suspected by the SBU in spreading fear and disinformation. In an attached memo, the SBU asked Twitter to remove the accounts and hand over their user data. The Ukrainian government's FBI-enabled targets extend to members of the media. The SBU list that the FBI provided to Twitter included my name, he's talking about himself, Aaron Mate, and Twitter profile. In its response to the FBI, Twitter agreed to review the accounts for quote-unquote inauthenticity, but raised concerns about the inclusion of Mate and other American and Canadian journalists. The FBI's attempt to ban Twitter accounts at the request of Ukrainian intelligence is among the most overt requests for censorship revealed to date in the Twitter files, a cache of leaked communications from the social media giant. And the article goes on with all of the details. I would encourage you to go check that out if you are interested in the subject. But this is essentially what we've come to expect. Now, how would ukrainian intelligence have the ability to censor american twitter users canadian twitter users journalists how would they have that ability well they would have to be part of the same regime that has control over this apparatus or maybe they were just asking for a nice favor they were saying hey will you please help us protect our sovereign border sure We have a comedic actor as president, the best comedic actor who has ever existed, and he is saving us, and our Nazi battalions are saving us, and the media is helping us cover up the money laundering and the bioweapons labs and the human trafficking and the whole Soros thing and the whole Kazarian mafia thing, that whole Nazi thing that's just been around there forever. How's it been there? I don't know, but it's not really enough. We're going to need you to censor some Americans and some Canadians as well. How do they get the opportunity to do that? Is it just out of the goodness of the regime's hearts? Nah, it's because it's all the same people and it's all being done through the same channels. All these commies are just running around, collecting everybody's data, censoring people and screaming Slava Ukraini, or however they say it. At least those Nazi supporters have never been known to, you know, chant little phrases or anything. Mm. Now, there was some potentially more positive Twitter news last night as Tucker on Twitter got its official start. Tucker put out a 10 or 11 minute video that was essentially like the opening monologue of his Fox News show. It was really great. I'm glad he's back out there producing content saying important things just mere days or weeks or months after we say them. And it looks like he has a major hit on his hands. And congratulations to Tucker Carlson. The post itself has gotten well over, at this point, 100 million views. Now, a lot of people are trying to claim that that is the number of views of his video. I'm fairly certain that's inaccurate. I believe that that's just impressions on his post and considering the amount of people who have shared that post, the view number is no surprise. Now, there's some confusion there. Some people are saying that's actually the number of people who have watched the video for the first six seconds or 10 seconds. I think we will get to the bottom of this, but the idea that a 100 million people just watched Tucker Carlson last night, whereas only a million and a half or 2 million or 3 million or whatever it was on Fox used to watch it on the cable news... That's a little crazy. The impact of Tucker on Twitter is undoubtable. It's definitely there. It's definitely true and good for him. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. But also we can just do that with the real numbers and not go crazy thinking that by the end of the week, something like one tenth of the world will have watched Tucker Carlson's first episode. But he's doing important work as far as the mainstream goes. Tucker pushes the envelope the most, and it's not even really close. It
3: is vitally important for you to support Ukraine because it's necessary for Ukraine to be supported by you. Your support is mandatory until it's finished, whatever it is and whatever that means. So shut up and support Ukraine or else you're in trouble. Back when they still taught logic, statements like this were known as tautologies. Something is true because it is. The more you repeat it, the truer it becomes. It's a self-reinforcing reality. There was a time when tautologies were considered illegitimate arguments, not to mention hilariously stupid. Only dumb people talk like that. Now everybody in power talks like that. Diversity is our strength. Trans women are women. Zelensky is Churchill. It's all self-evidently true. Doesn't need an explanation and don't ask questions. Sound familiar? Of course it does. That's the PAP they're serving us day after day in steaming, lumpy portions. By this point, it's possible that American citizens are the least informed people in the world. Your average yak herder in Tajikistan knows who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. It's obvious. Does he think some skinny dude in a dress is actually a girl? Come on. That idea would never occur to him. You've got to be lied to at full volume over a period of years in order to reach conclusions like that. And, of course, we have been. The media lie. They do. But mostly, they just ignore the stories that matter. What's happened to the hundreds of billions of US dollars we've sent to Ukraine? No clue. Who organized those BLM riots three years ago? No one's gotten to the bottom of that. What exactly happened on 9-11? Well, it's still classified. How did Jeffrey Epstein make all that money? How did he die? How about JFK? And so endlessly on. Not only are the media not interested in any of this, they are actively hostile to anybody who is. In journalism, curiosity is the gravest crime. Yesterday, for example, a former Air Force officer who worked for years in military intelligence came forward as a whistleblower to reveal that the U.S. government has physical evidence of crashed, non-human-made aircraft, as well as the bodies of the pilots who flew those aircraft. The Pentagon has spent decades studying these otherworldly remains in order to build more technologically advanced weapon systems. Okay, that's what the former intel officer revealed, and it was clear he was telling the truth. In other words, UFOs are actually real, and apparently so is extraterrestrial life. Now we know. In a normal country, this news would qualify as a bombshell, the story of the millennium. But in our country, it doesn't.
1: Now, as far as the alien thing goes, I don't think that that is what the media should spend all their time on, to be honest. But I do think it's good that we're getting these alien stories because it makes the chances that they're going to be able to pull off some fake alien event much lower as people condition themselves to that story. And that is helpful. But it's good that he's going after the media. It's good that he's making the point that the media exists to lie to you and to cover up what the government is doing so that they can never be held to account. That is one of the things most critical to understand in this time. Now, Tucker being off Fox News and saying those things, I guess it's good for the crowd that's going to be able to access him on Twitter, and most people can or most people will learn to, but a big chunk of that Fox News audience is probably not going to follow him to Twitter. The older viewers on Fox News, the people who still want to watch Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, they might not see Tucker on Twitter, and that's too bad because this is far more important than what they're talking about on Fox News. And now, finally, I want to get into at least some of this. Maybe we won't get all the way through it today. Maybe I'll come back to it tomorrow. But there was a big piece that dropped in the Wall Street Journal today with this headline. Instagram connects vast pedophile network. Now, that's the sort of headline that should never, ever appear in a newspaper anywhere. Why? Because it's a conspiracy theory. How are the newspapers publishing conspiracy theories now? They're as bad as the people on 4chan. Instagram, the popular social media site owned by Meta Platforms, helps connect and promote a vast network of accounts openly devoted to the commission and purchase of underage sex content, according to investigations by The Wall Street Journal and researchers at Stanford University and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Pedophiles have long used the internet, but unlike the forums and file transfer services that cater to people who have an interest in illicit content, Instagram doesn't merely host these activities. Its algorithms promote them. Instagram connects pedophiles and guides them to content sellers via recommendation systems that excel at linking those who share niche interests, the journal and the academic researchers found. Though out of sight for most on the platform, the sexualized accounts on Instagram are brazen about their interest. The researchers found that Instagram enabled people to search explicit hashtags such as hashtag pedo whore and hashtag preteen sex and connected them to accounts that use the terms to advertise child sex material for sale. Such accounts often claim to be run by the children themselves and use overtly sexual handles incorporating words such as, quote, little slut for you. Instagram accounts offering to sell illicit sex material generally don't publish it openly, instead posting menus of content. Certain accounts invite buyers to commission specific acts. Some menus include prices for videos of children harming themselves and, quote, imagery of the minor performing sexual acts with animals, end quote. Researchers at the Stanford Internet Observatory found at the right price, Children are available for in person meetups. Now, do we have any doubt that stuff like this happens online? Absolutely no doubt whatsoever. It exists on all the social media platforms and it is facilitated by those social media platforms. Those social media platforms are especially convenient for facilitating all of this because, for the longest time, they evaded normal lines of communication that would be tracked to stop these sorts of things from happening. And if, for instance, the people running all of these platforms are actually part of that regime and part of the apparatus that creates the underage sex industry that does exist in this world, sadly and horrifyingly enough, well, then they just might have on these platforms a safe space to conduct that business out of the sight of the public Generally speaking, we have heard many times about the presence of this sort of thing on Twitter, and it has been there for a long time. It is widely reported on all of these sites. Now, the fact that this is coming from the Stanford Internet Observatory is already a major red flag that this is probably and likely some form of limited hangout. The promotion of underage sex content violates rules established by Meta as well as federal law. Obviously. In response to questions from the journal, Meta acknowledged problems with its enforcement operations and said it has set up an internal task force to address the issues raised. Child exploitation is a horrific crime, the company said, adding, We are continuously investigating ways to actively defend against this behavior. Meta said, It has in the past two years taken down 27 pedophile networks and is planning more removals since receiving the journal queries. The platform said it has blocked thousands of hashtags that sexualize children, some with millions of posts and restricted its systems from recommending users search for terms known to be associated with sex abuse. It said it is also working on preventing its systems from recommending that potentially pedophilic adults connect with one another or interact with one another's content. Alex Stamos, the head of the Stanford Internet Observatory and Meta's chief security officer until 2018, said that getting even obvious abuse under control would likely take a sustained effort. So Alex Stamos is one of the critical figures in the censorship industrial complex as is Stanford Internet Observatory. And we know that Meta has heavily censored on Facebook and Instagram. Twitter is obviously heavily censored and Google heavily censors and manipulates not only its search platform, but also, of course, YouTube. And here we have more signs of a limited hangout operation. They're able to censor political content by algorithm. They imagine they can find these networks of people who are Russian trolls or exhibiting inauthentic behavior. They can take down all of QAnon. But despite all that, there is nothing they can do about blatant and obvious pedophilic content and the connections of people trying to get underage sexual content. Until they hear from the Stanford Internet Observatory that all this bad stuff is happening. Meta said it has in the past two years taken down 27 pedophile networks. Since receiving the journal queries, the platform said it blocked thousands of hashtags, some with millions of posts and restricted its systems from recommending users search for terms associated with sex abuse. That's what the article says. So they have just made these changes, even though years ago they were totally capable of removing all sorts of political content from their platforms at the behest of the federal government. So they're not removing child sexual abuse material and they're not breaking up these networks of people, but they can censor everything about the Hunter Biden laptop and make sure that no one who is even associated with QAnon's ideas, can be on the platform. And we are supposed to think, oh, yeah, I guess those pedophiles were just hiding and they didn't know where they were and they were so focused on this political stuff, they didn't think, oh, maybe we should deal with that pedophile stuff. It was probably just an oversight or mismanagement of resources. Here's Alex Stamos commenting. That a team of three academics with limited access could find such a huge network should set off alarms at Meta. I hope the company reinvests in human investigators. Technical and legal hurdles make determining the full scale of the network hard for anyone outside Meta to measure precisely. Well, thank goodness we have so much of the FBI and the CIA actually in Meta. Maybe they can help. Because the laws around child sex content are extremely broad, investigating even the open promotion of it on a public platform is legally sensitive. In its reporting, the journal consulted with academic experts on online child safety. Stanford's Internet Observatory, a division of the university's Cyber Policy Center, focused on social media abuse, produced an independent quantitative analysis of the Instagram features that help users connect and find content. Oh, good. They've mapped it out. The journal also approached UMass's Rescue Lab, which evaluated how pedophiles on Instagram fit into the larger ecosystem of online child exploitation. Using different methods, both entities were able to quickly identify large-scale communities promoting criminal sex abuse It's so great that they could identify them so quickly. If only somebody else had tried earlier. Test accounts set up by researchers that viewed a single account in the network were immediately hit with suggested for you recommendations of purported child sex content sellers and buyers, as well as accounts linking to off-platform content trading sites. Following just a handful of these recommendations was enough to flood a test account with content that sexualizes children. The Stanford Internet Observatory used hashtags associated with underage sex to find 405 sellers of what researchers labeled self-generated child sex material or accounts purportedly run by children themselves, some saying they were as young as 12. According to data gathered via Maltigo, a network mapping software, 112 of those seller accounts collectively had 22,000 unique followers. Underage sex content creators and buyers are just a corner of a larger ecosystem devoted to sexualized child content. Other accounts in the pedophile community on Instagram aggregate pro-pedophilia memes or discuss their access to children. Current and former meta employees who have worked on Instagram child safety initiatives Estimate the number of accounts that exist primarily to follow such content is in the high hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Instagram, estimated to have more than 1.3 billion users, is especially popular with teens. The Stanford researchers found some similar sexually exploitative activity on other smaller social platforms, but said they found the problem on Instagram is particularly severe. The most important platform for these networks of buyers and sellers seems to be Instagram. They wrote in a report slated for release on June 7th. Instagram said its internal statistics show that users see child exploitation in less than one in 10,000 posts viewed. So I guess that's good. Imagine seeing 10,000 posts on Instagram. I don't think that that's out of line If you follow a bunch of people and you're on it fairly regularly, what do you see? A hundred posts a day? Could you see a thousand posts a day? Yeah, you sure could. It doesn't take that long to see 10,000 Instagram posts. The article talks about how there is a database of images and exploited children that the social media platforms compare their content to and any hits on that are reported They go on to say Meta's automated screening for existing child exploitation content can't detect new images or efforts to advertise their sale. Preventing and detecting such activity requires not just reviewing user reports, but tracking and disrupting pedophile networks, say current and former staffers, as well as the Stanford researchers. The goal is to make it difficult for such users to connect with each other, find content and recruit victims. Such work is vital because law enforcement agencies lack the resources to investigate more than a tiny fraction of the tips NCMEC receives, says Levine of UMass. And NCMEC is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So the load is too heavy for the law enforcement community. But also, we were just told by the communists, that we needed to defund the police. I don't think they were planning on taking that money and spending it to pursue pedophiles. Skipping down. Among other platforms popular with young people, Snapchat is used mainly for its direct messaging, so it doesn't help create networks. And TikTok's platform is one where, quote, this type of content does not appear to proliferate. The Stanford report said, David Thiel, chief technologist at the Stanford Internet Observatory said Instagram's problem comes down to content discovery features, the ways topics are recommended and how much the platform relies on search and links between accounts. Thiel, who previously worked at Meta on security and safety issues, added, you have to put guardrails in place for something that growth intensive to still be nominally safe. And Instagram hasn't. The platform has struggled to oversee a basic technology, keywords. Hashtags are a central part of content discovery on Instagram, allowing users to tag and find posts of interest to a particular community, from broad topics such as fashion or NBA to narrower ones such as embroidery or spelunking. Now, that's funny because there are plenty of banned hashtags on Instagram. And you can actually just use any search engine and find articles showing lists of hashtags that are banned and or shadow banned and or suppressed on Instagram. So it's certainly possible. They're certainly aware of it. When I used to work in social media, they would tell us which hashtags we should have our clients use because they knew that they would promote those hashtags. The same obviously works in reverse whenever they want it to. Apparently, they just didn't want it to. Pedophiles have their chosen hashtags too. Search terms such as pedobait and variations on hashtag MNSFW, minor not safe for work, had been used to tag thousands of posts dedicated to advertising. Sex content featuring children, rendering them easily findable by buyers, the academic researchers found. Following queries from the journal, Meta said it is in the process of banning such terms. It's wonderful that these platforms are always in the process of fixing things but never actually fixing them. In many cases, Instagram has permitted users to search for terms that its own algorithms know may be associated with illegal material. In such cases, a pop-up screen for users warned that, quote, these results may contain images of child sexual abuse, end quote, and noted that production and consumption of such material causes, quote, extreme harm to children. The screen offered two options for users, get resources and see results anyway. In response to questions from the journal, Instagram removed the option for users to view search results for terms likely to produce illegal images. The company declined to say why it had offered the option. The pedophilic accounts on Instagram mix brazenness with superficial efforts to veil their activity, researchers found. Certain emojis function as a kind of code, such as an image of a map, shorthand for minor attracted person, or one of cheese pizza, which shares its initials with child pornography, according to Levine of UMass. Many declare themselves lovers of the little things in life. Accounts identify themselves as seller or seller with a three as one of the E's. And many state their preferred form of payment in their bios. These seller accounts often convey the child's purported age by saying they are on, quote, Chapter 14 or age 31, followed by an emoji of a reverse arrow, basically saying read that 31 backwards and then it's 13. Some of the accounts bore indications of sex trafficking, said Levine of UMass, such as one displaying a teenager with the word whore scrawled across her face. Some users claiming to sell self-produced sex content say they are quote, faceless, offering images only from the neck down because of past experiences in which customers have stalked or blackmailed them. Others take the risk charging a premium for images and video that could reveal their identity by showing their face. Jumping down to the end. In some instances, Instagram's recommendation systems directly undercut efforts by its own safety staff. After the company decided to crack down on links from a specific encrypted file transfer service notorious for transmitting child sex content, Instagram blocked searches for its name. Instagram's AI-driven hashtag suggestions didn't get the message. Despite refusing to show results for the service's name, the platform's autofill feature recommended that users try variations on the name with the words Boys and CP added to the end. So Instagram just found this problem, just found out about it right now. Thank goodness for the censorship-oriented Stanford Internet Observatory and Alex Stamos, or we would have never known about this problem that was just sitting there right on the surface that Meta and Instagram absolutely knew about and did not do anything about They're able to take down political content. They're able to track entire networks that they will claim comprise a dangerous political movement. They'll remove all of those people from the platform. Their algorithms scan pictures to know if the pictures need to be censored. They've had all of these capabilities for years and they haven't done anything until, you know, the last couple of years. And then how about that part on the hashtags and the code words, cheese pizza? Well, that sounds exactly like the claims that were being made in Pizzagate. It wasn't only about the pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. and James Alafontis, the politically connected pervert who ran that pizza place and is good friends with people like John Podesta, who has the absolute creepiest art in the entire world on his walls. It wasn't just that stuff. It was code words in emails produced by WikiLeaks that talked about $65,000 shipments of pizza and hot dogs headed to Barack Obama's White House for a party. Are we now being told that these terms really do mean the things that people said they mean, that this stuff really does happen in the world? There actually are pedophiles. We know that there are elite pedophiles. We know about the Epstein thing. We know who he was associated with. We know that there is child sexual abuse material on the Internet. We know that the distribution of that material and the child sex trade itself is exists on the internet and on these social media platforms? Which part is a conspiracy theory? Which part did everyone get wrong? Which part of this isn't a huge, huge problem? Again, we are talking about protection for people who commit crimes against humanity and platforms where they can facilitate these crimes. We are told we're liars, that we're spreading misinformation. The public is gaslit to believe that this stuff doesn't happen or that it's very rare, that it's not on a widespread basis, that it's not a real industry, that there's not real money behind it. There's not real power behind it. There's not politicians behind it, but it turns out absolutely all of that is wrong. And what do we get? We get limited hangouts from the Wall Street Journal. This doesn't sound like an expose. This doesn't sound like a takedown of Meta and Instagram, this sounds like they're being protected. We are getting the softest version of this. We are being told, man, there's this really bad problem and we hope that they can solve it. They've known about it for a little while. They've solved some of it. They're gonna solve more of it. They plan to solve more of it and someday they might get closer to solving it all, but it's really, really hard to solve it all. It's so hard to solve it all that our AI can't even do it all on its own. And that's the problem. It's all the AI's fault. Sure, we program the AI and we tell everybody that AI is going to lead us into a bright utopian future, but the AI is just not there yet. It just can't do everything we need it to do. And so in the meantime, you know, this... Child sexual abuse material. It's just going to stay on Instagram and Facebook. And we're going to say that we're taking care of it, but, you know, we're just going to leave it there. That's what we're being told. That is essentially what we're being told. And they're not saying, oh, hey, by the way, all those conspiracy theorists, they were right the whole time and people should have listened to them. Nope. It's just being presented as breaking news. And you know what people believe when they hear about breaking news? Well, hey, that just happened but this didn't just happen. A lot of these stories didn't just happen. What we're seeing is the public finally understanding them. What we're seeing is the regime finally being forced to admit that these stories, at least in part, are true. And that at least is the part that makes it okay. It may not be breaking news, but it is a layer. It is a new layer. And to a lot of people who aren't very good at getting information or maybe they're just not paying attention. This is breaking news to them and maybe it'll help them wake up. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcotour.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range.